CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Well, Happy New Year. Here we are in 2022, and it's time for the Coin World Podcast. Great to be here for the new year with all the new adventures still yet to come, including the fun show down in Orlando. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark, and boy, are we looking forward to have having a lot of fun at the fun show. We hope you'll stop by the Coin World Plus booth, the sponsor of the Coin World podcast. We couldn't do it without them. We can't do it without you. We wouldn't want to do it without you there. So drop by and say hello if you see us there, if you're at the show. But if you're not, well, I'll be at the New York International next week, and uh, certainly we'll be hitting shows over the coming months. But, you know, you don't have to uh, go to a show to stay in touch with us. That's uh, that's why we do this every week, right, Larry? Oh, absolutely, because we know that it's going to be an opportunity to help expand your numismatic knowledge and help expand you in the hobby to enjoy the things that you really enjoy doing here. And certainly glad that uh, you are along for that. And again, we encourage you to be a member of our team to help us out here and make sure that you suggest the ideas, the uh, subjects you'd like to see. We're working on uh, some very special activities in 2022. I mean, who knows what good things are going to be bringing here? And that's the operative word right now is that everybody makes New Year's resolutions at times. It's not a New Year's resolution per se, as much as it is a necessary need to change mindset. And that's the idea behind it. We want to start thinking a little more positive here, not focusing so much on the negative. So many times in social media, sure, there are negative events that happen. We've lost a lot of friends in the past year. But the idea is we need to focus on what we can control here. There are other controllables out there and what we can control. And what we control is the idea that each and every time we get together for our Corn World podcast, we like to look back. Sometimes we look back 60 years or less, and sometimes we look all the way back to the beginning of the mint or even beyond that. But today, as we get ready to start off a brand new year with the Coin World podcast, I want to look back on what I consider to be a very positive year in 2021 because we had a lot of great guests we had a lot of interesting shows and we had a lot of ways of commemorating the hobby the that we uh, celebrated course, right here in the most storied coin so i think i think in that US today would be a good idea to just because take a look of at some of the great shows that we had in 2021 for sure i mean uh, you think about all the milestones we reached you know, we had uh, the big hunt, episode 100 way back all in of the year back from and folks who i think we really had some fantastic guests but leading off the year one of my favorite guests was matthew chiarello the author of a book about inaugural there was still a which you know it was perfect timing really that, because um, there was a new administration new inaugural medals about had just come out number. One, and of course, it was nice was to see some modern to scholarship to Egypt, some recent scholarship updating the books that were out there that hadn't really been updated in 40 years. It was really I won't cool say to discriminating talk to him, taste, 
and getting hear his passion, have him share his, wide his passion with you. Everything from We're the most common of gold US coins to right the rarest. Now. And remind you that if, the government you know, let that one if you out, hear any of this and, and phenomenal didn't hear to think it that here we are, you should go it back was, and catch those Almost 19 years, 18 and a half years, somewhere in there, that it sold at Sotheby's to an unknown individual, and now we know who it is. Of course, a lot of the stuff really is timeless. In New York, for several years, there was a lot of speculation as to based on who a news site might own it. I know some people even said that they thought maybe Alan Greenspan was the owner. That's that's a rumor I've heard. And of course, obviously, it turns out not to be true. Well, yeah, and it stands well, out. Of course, to me and whenever you have a rumor like that, one, and whenever you involve names. That are but well that known or expected to be a part of something. I think we're going to have to go through that again. We uh, actually have the sale here. You know, you try to think back to all the uh, whys and wherefores of the scenario as to why the government allowed uh, King Farouk to get this particular specimen while they were being very protective. I thought that maybe the government wasn't thinking that they would ever have to deal with this again, as uh, you know, the idea was it was going to go somewhere. It was going to stay somewhere and you know that was just the case but that truly wasn't the case it ended up coming back to these shores and that created a whole nother set of problems so the anonymity of the owner the uh, actual providence of it when it was back in the beginning all added and they weave this tapestry of the story that the latest chapter is going to be opening up in the month of June and as you talk about people that were rumored to be connected with it now the thought becomes who would be the ones that would be interested in obtaining it that's a great question that's exactly right I mean they do kind of hit this weird middle space you know, not for me. I, I uh, don't have an off switch. So I have a coin collection <laughs> and an inaugural medal collection. But I actually got started. I'm a big history buff, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are. And I also really enjoy collecting things in a finite series. You know, I'd like to be able to have an idea that, okay, if I really get into this, can I reasonably acquire all the things in this space or at least a you know, representative uh, set of things in this space. This really hit the nail on the head for me. Uh, it goes from 1901 with a rolling in date as recent as this year. And it's really kind of an achievable set. And they're beautiful. They've got some great designs over the years. And it's not like something that where there's five new issues every year that you have to keep up with. It's just once every four years, a new issue. Can you talk about some folks know the U.S. Mint did a medal set for all the presidents, and that set is often confused with the official inaugural medals. What do collectors consider the first official inaugural medal? And this is, I believe, even before your 1901 start date of this new book. That's exactly right. To your first point, you're right. I only have to update the book twice a decade, so that's that's nice. <laughs> Um, but the inaugural committee, so the difference really between the U.S. Mint medals and these official medals is that the official medals are authorized by the inaugural committee and historically were gifted to members of the committee to sort of thank them for their service. It's become much more commercial ever since about Truman and Nixon, uh, sort of in that sort of ramp up to more national sales to fund the inauguration. But to your question about when is sort of the first, the first sort of quote unquote table medal is the 1901 McKinley. But as early as 1889, the inaugural committee was attaching small medals to badges to identify committee members. And so those three badges, uh, 1889, uh, 93, and McKinley's first term are also in the book, but they're sort of as a, as a bit of an aside, right? So really it's 1901 to date. 
Okay. So those pieces from 1889 to 1901, those were the gateway drugs. That was the thing that sort of set, <laughs> set the stage for what we know today as inaugural metals. That's right. And some of the design elements carry forward. So each of those three badges had a picture of the president in one case or two cases, the vice president. And then on the reverse, sort of a stylistic Americana, whether it's a picture of the Capitol, eagle and arrows, those design motifs carry through all the way to, to Biden's. Well, hopefully you found that as interesting as we did. That was early on in the year. And it wasn't much later than that when probably the biggest news of 2021 numismatically came out. And that was the news that the 1933 Gold Double Eagle would be sold at auction. It turns out the auction was held in June. And uh, Larry and I took the opportunity in episode 104 to explore what that meant. You know, at the time before the announcement, we didn't know who owned the coin. And uh, so that was that was big news as well, that all of a sudden the hobby got to learn who was the owner of the coin. But, you know, it was much bigger news that this was coming back on the market. We got to play a little, you know, armchair prognostication and uh, guessing game, see what we thought it would sell for. It was really fun to explore that history of a, of a great rarity, a storied piece of numismatic history. And the interesting part about that is, if you go back in time to when that happened, and when we found out about the owner of that particular coin, if you go three, four weeks in advance of that, it wasn't even a topic of conversation. The coin was definitely out there. It was historically proven that somebody had bought that coin, but that somebody was unknown. And just the idea that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes this new story, which turns out to be one of the top stories of 2021, and we had the chance to, you know, this kind of like the uh, the football program shows where they analyze everything and and look at who, you know, has the best chance to win and all this. And I mean, you were I got to admit, you were pretty close in your estimation of what the actual amount was going to be. But it was exciting on that day back in June after we'd done the podcast, but exciting to watch to see how close we were going to be. And I bow down to you. You were right there. I think I was within a couple million, wasn't I? I don't oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got your Dizzy Dean thing happening, so that uh, really helped help the situation. <laughs> yep. So, no, it, it was fun. Uh, you know, certainly it's worth remembering as we look back at the year. That was, uh, that was a fun one. So here that is. The 33 Double Eagle, of course, most storied coin, I think, in U.S. history because of the surreptitious way some got out of the mint, the ensuing chase by the Secret Service to acquire all of them back from folks who had obtained them, the government says illegally, and uh, certainly there's been a court ruling to support that. Uh, Many collectors disagree or believe there was still a window of opportunity that um, could have allowed this coin to slip out a certain small number. One, of course, was allowed to be exported to Egypt, where King Farouk was a famous collector, and uh, he had, I won't say discriminating taste in getting the 33, but his tastes were wide-ranging, everything from the most common of gold U.S. coins to the rarest. But famously, the government let that one out. It's just 
phenomenal to think that here we are. It was uh, almost 19 years, 18 and a half years, somewhere in there, that it sold at Sotheby's to an unknown individual, and now we know who it is. Of course, it was on exhibit in New York for several years. There was a lot of speculation as to who might own it. I know some people even said that they thought maybe Alan Greenspan was the owner. That's that's a rumor I've heard. And of course, obviously, it turns out not to be true. Well, of course, and whenever you have a rumor like that, and whenever you involve names that are well-known or expected to be a part of something, I think we're going to have to go through that again when we uh, actually have the sale here. You know, you try to think back to all the uh, whys and wherefores of the scenario as to why the government allowed uh, King Farouk to get this particular specimen while they were being very protective. I thought that maybe the government wasn't thinking that they would ever have to deal with this again, as uh, you know, the idea was it was going to go somewhere, it was going to stay somewhere, and you know that was just the case. But that truly wasn't the case. It ended up coming back to these shores, and that created a whole nother set of problems. So the anonymity of the owner, the uh, actual provenance of it when it was back in the beginning, all added and they weave this tapestry of the story that the latest chapter is going to be opening up in the month of June. And as you talk about people that were rumored to be connected with it, now the thought becomes who would be the ones that would be interested in obtaining it and how? It's going to be the top story, I think, uh, one of the top stories this year, if not the top story. Now the question comes down to, like you say, who's going to buy it? And then, of course, everybody's, you know, the parlor game is, what's it going to sell for? Yeah, I've seen anywhere from when it did sell for $7.59 million, um, just back in 2002. So I said, okay, let's go ahead and take that number, $7.59 million, and let's find out what a dollar was worth in the year 2002 compared to the dollar that we have in 2021 and the difference it becomes a dollar 46 so then by multiplying 7.59 million by a dollar 46 i came up with the figure of 11 million 81,400 dollars a dollar today buys approximately 68.49% of what a dollar in 2002 bought now, I'm not advocating somebody try to buy 70% of this coin. However, the number coming up over the $10 million mark is significant because that's probably going to be the spot where bidding, in many cases, begins to really intensify. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't even entertain anything under 10. Wow. That's just something to remember that uh, really was a historic event. And, you know, you know the idea that after it was sold a few years back, and then nobody thought they'd ever live to see that happening again. But it actually did happen, and I, I was thrilled to see the coin itself uh, at the ANA show at uh, Rosemont when it was on display when Ian Russell brought it in from Great Collections, and it was actually on display there. And that's quite the masterpiece there. But, you know, that's a beautiful coin right there. It's a perfect coin. I mean, it's as close to perfection as you can get. But we found out that perfection is a noble pursuit, but not necessarily always the end. And we've made our share of mistakes throughout the course of 2021 and certainly going to make one or two of them in 2022. But mistakes are you know, more valuable to us in this hobby 
than perhaps in some others. I mean, you think about the uh, the stamp collectors, they have the upside down airplanes. and But we have a whole entire group that's in pursuit of things that are not perfect. We were very fortunate enough to devote some of our episodes to uh, coins that just simply aren't perfect. I think the one that stands out to me first is uh, episode uh, 113 with Joe Cronin, who really, uh, he authored what is just a phenomenal book, Mint Errors to Die For, I think it is. And um, boy, for somebody who's interested in learning about errors and varieties and how they happen and you know, really just errors, I should say, but how they happen, the foibles of the mint process and things that exist that people try to pass off as errors that aren't errors, all those things. It was, it's just a phenomenal book. And he was such a a fun guest, a knowledgeable, friendly guy. It really was one of the highlights of the year for us to get to talk to him and, and to share his some of his knowledge with everyone. It was one of the situations that just keeps on giving. I looked at the book again recently because there are so many things inside the book of Minerals to Die For. In fact, there's been a second edition since we uh, had our initial uh, broadcast with Joe back in the day. But uh, the idea that he, with his journey, with his experience with the Border Patrol, with all the things that come there and his dedication and his passion and his ability to teach. And that all conveyed itself in the, his words that he shared with us on here. So I think now's a good time to take you back to uh, Joe Cronin, Mint Errors to Die For, as he, uh, we take a little bit of a highlight of that episode in which we featured Joe Cronin, Mint Errors to Die For. Trying to be a perfectionist about things is really when I started noticing there were some flaws on some coins and they were damaged. And I went to a a local dealer in the area who uh, didn't really know much about errors, but he had someone to bin and he just gave me a couple, a couple off center cents. And I kind of took off from there. I just liked things that were different and, you know, not the same cookie cutter, same date, different mint mark, but same design with very, very uh, few changes over the years. And then uh, on top of that, I started working for the U S Customs service uh, in 2000 and learning about, you know, things that come into the country and how you do inspections and how you can check if something is genuine or if something altered something. And, you know, you really learn how a lot of goods that come from certain countries are flagged because there's a high potential either for things like terrorism or, you know, fraudulent merchandise or altered merchandise or stolen merchandise and just learning, you know, just all the things that we found working there, like fake Gucci purses and bags and Gucci sent people to tell you how to tell if they're real GM, like people were faking car parts and medicines and all kinds of stuff. And it just, it kind of that fed into deadly uh, implications. My goodness. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of fed one thing. Like I started taking an interest in like, you know, errors and flaws and how they happen and then learning how to tell if something is fake or genuine and just, you know, working in collaboration with some, uh, some people I knew at the Secret Service got into learning more about currency and paper bills. And they had a little presentation about coins that were counterfeited and how they made them. And it just like really in the early 2000s is really when I took a big interest to, to uh, you know, focus a little bit more on mint errors. And then within the last three years, three to four years, 
that's really all I do. I don't focus really on anything else. I don't complete, you know, like, like short sets of like, you know, um, wartime mercury dimes or wartime coinage. It's really now focused on errors and through my research errors and coins that were altered to look like errors or they're counterfeit or they're damaged. And that's really why I specialize in those. And that's pretty much the focus of the book. It's, you know, errors and how they happen. And that's the key thing, too, is you talk about your uh, background with uh, customs and learning about the different things. I, obviously, and it shows all the way through the book here, that one of the things that you really had to educate yourself on is the minting process. And I, anybody who's even interested in any kind of mini errors or understanding as, as much as they can about coins needs to understand how a coin is made. Exactly. And the same with products like, you know, with, with Gucci and with... Um, Louis Vuitton, like you, you have to know how they, the product, what is its origin point after you cut the fabric, after you cut the leather? When do you do the stitching? Um, what is the stitching made of? What process does one thing happen after the other? And those ways are you can easily tell uh, with just a few seconds look in some cases that something just is not genuine. And it's really no different from coins. It's interesting. We, you know, we just heard Joe part of that episode where Joe talked about the mistakes, the things that maybe uh, aren't pretty and aren't the best of the best. And uh, our next guest that jumps to mind fits in that vein of, you know, finding beauty in mis imperfection, right? Um, Andrew Edelman talked about the best of the worst in uh, episode 119. It's something that I don't even know. I don't think you were aware of this as a, as a topic. And there's a lot of folks who didn't know about this. Don't didn't really, you hear about it and go, well, why would somebody want the lowest grade coin that is in a holder? But you know, it's flipping what we sort of intuitively know on our head. And that, that difference, that dichotomy, that, you know, the uniqueness almost of, you know, this is the worst coin in a, in a holder out there for this type is a reminder that regardless of what's out there, somebody's going to collect it, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether it's the top of the top or the lowest of the low. It's going to have a distinction in it in some way. I mean, one of the most difficult things is trying to explain to somebody on a price guide why the one all the way down at the bottom has a higher value than one that's in the middle somewhere. And it's just like, okay, well, that just depends on how many people are interested in that. And it was interesting to see by looking at the amount of registry sets that there were that were uh, going after the uh, lowest graded coins that were out there. And to me, you know, it just flies in the face of what you're trying to accomplish. We talked about the previous, the $18.87 million St. Gaudens, and that's the pinnacle right there. And now you're dredging along the bottom as far as grade goes, but still, as Andrew explained throughout the course of that episode, that there is the attraction there. And one of the questions I remember asking him was uh, the fact that he is a uh, a family, I think third, third or fourth generation uh, dealer here. And it's just like, how do you get the previous generations to relate to something like this? And I think that was a struggle, but it's unique in that way. And it was great that we were able to uh, spend some time with Andrew Edelman and get an understanding of what it takes to be a lowball collector. And this is some of the highlights of what we remember from that particular episode, the episode featuring Andrew Edelman. That goes on our list. It's not in any kind of order right here. It comes up as episode number 119, Andrew Edelman and the Lowball Collection. I have a coin shop where I buy coins over the counter, 
And one day I bought a classic commemorative set in a, in a Dansko album, and it was about half full. And I didn't really think too much of it at the time, but after I was looking at it, I realized that these coins were really circulated uh, for classic commems. Normally, classic commems are uncirculated, if not maybe AU. A few of them come worn like you know, Colombians and, and Stone Mountains. Uh, but these had you know, Lafayette dollars extremely worn and, and some other coins like a Lincoln commem that was in uh, AG that I had never seen before in my life, these, this worn. And I, I loved it. It was one of the coolest sets I'd ever bought. Um, it wasn't particularly expensive, but it was so uh, interesting to me that these coins, these classic commems that were never supposed to circulate could get so worn. And that little, you know, kind of starter set that I happened to buy over the counter really got me interested uh, in low balls in general. Um, so I actually started with classic commemorative coins, uh, you know, the most worn possible, which by the way, is oftentimes, you know, if you find an XF on some of these commands, very, very hard to do. And that was about five or six years ago that I, that I started there. And once I kind of hit a wall, like a lot of people, you know, you, you have your favorite collection and you, you hit a wall, you, you're getting one upgrade every few months and uh, you want something to do. I started my typeset. Originally, it was just a dance code. I believe it's a, a 2020 set, like a regular typeset. And I would just save the most worn example as I could. At this point, I wasn't doing PCGS registry or anything like that. I was just having a lot of fun trying to find a really worn examples. And uh, about a couple of years ago, I decided to get more serious about it. And I sent in all the coins that I had been saving for about uh, five years at that point and uh, really started taking it serious and, and looking at um, auctions and in, in, uh, different major auction houses and really trying to get out all those poor ones that I could that I could find. How does somebody tell a heavily circulated coin that's going to get into a holder and possibly be eligible for a lowball set from one that's not going to get in there because, you know, I mean, you go onto the PCGS site and the set registry and there's all sorts of sub types, whether that's, you know, just lowball Carson City half dollars, lowball Morgan dollars with varieties. You can build a top 100 VAM set lowballs, which, mm-hmm. you know, it seems to me if it's, circulated enough how do you tell the the variety if there's the wear is you know present so you know how many times do you send something in and it doesn't get holdered because it's not eligible or doesn't you know for whatever Uh, reason qualify yeah very frequently and a lot of these coins uh it's not possible to really get poor ones because of that you know sometimes you know if you have like the 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 popular hot lips van variety on morgan uh you can get a poor one on that because you can still see those lips even uh if it's extremely worn, uh, but other varieties, you're right. A low ball might be a good six or even, you know, a VF, uh, depending on what it is. Maybe some doubling uh, can only be seen when it gets to a certain point. A lot of coins don't necessarily have to be poor one because you do still need to know what date it is, of course, uh, and mid mark sometimes. Uh, so it does limit how worn some things can get. Uh, the, the best ones are like if, if it's just a one year type and all you need is, is a little detail to make out what type it is. Uh, if it's a one year type, like a, uh, a 1794 half cent, you just need that that outline, that detail to know what coin it is. And those are uh, those are my favorite. Following Andrew's story, you know, you mentioned Andrew's a uh, family in a family of numismatists. It's kind of fun to see coins 
being used in a different way. And we got to talk about the start of a new family, sort of, um, when we spoke with Alex and Elizabeth, and they talked to us about how a coin was used for a proposal in uh, just the week after Andrew Edelman episode. So episode 120, we talked to Alex and Elizabeth and got to explore Russian literature and find out what place a gold coin uh, had in, in that proposal. So that was a fun one. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that, because it was something a little bit different here. And this coin was not a uh, not something that you're going to run into all the time. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to see one of these at the fun show this week. But uh, I think the, the likelihood of that is not going to be very high. And the effort that was put into it to find this coin. I mean, this gentleman down in the, the Florida area, as I recall, going to an Ohio dealer and getting it done, making the transaction through the internet and making it all work out and then surprising his then fiance with it. And she was absolutely thrilled with this idea, just absolutely thrilled. It showed that, you know, he paid attention to her more than just, okay, here's a ring deer, you're mine now type thing. It was just a great concept to have that and know that the coin, not just any coin, this was a significant coin and it goes to show you, we've seen examples recently in the stories that uh, Steve Roach recently did a story on gold jewelry. And these are just coins that were fashioned into cufflinks or something like that. And that was just simply a decorative type thing where this one had an emotional connection to it that really, it really resonated. So I think that was uh, that was one that you found. And I think that's uh, a good on you for finding that one because that was a great episode. We all love coins, but this is a different kind of love being conveyed through coins. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome, Jeff. So let's go back to the post you made on Facebook uh, last week. You recently got engaged, Alex, to Elizabeth. You asked and she said yes. She did. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. How, how long have you been dating? Uh, we've been dating almost about two years now. Awesome. And uh, you're down in Florida. But what really sounded fun with this is you had a non-conventional way to propose, and that was with a coin. What coin did you use? So the coin I used was an 1866 Russian five ruple. The reason why I use this coin is because when we first started talking, we exchanged books because we both liked to read. And at the time, I was reading Crime and Punishment. And so I gave that book to her and she really liked the book. And for the longest time, she's wanted a coin from the book itself, either a Rupal or Kopeck. No, I wanted the Rupal. <laughs> <laughs> she has exquisite taste, Alex. <laughs> yes. The book was written in 1866 by the Russian author Dostoevsky. Yes, yes. I was I was having a lot of trouble finding it, and I was like, can we do a 67? Can we do like a 65? And she's like, no, it has to be a 66. And so all along this idea, Elizabeth, was you just wanted a coin from the book because it was something connected and you appreciated the book. Did you ever anticipate it would be used in place of uh, the traditional engagement ring? No, never. 
I know it's probably stereotypical to say that a lot of women, you know, they think about their wedding and their, you know, there's all these stories of engagements that go viral. How was the coin presented? How walk us through, retell us the, the magical moment where Alex popped the question. So we went to a restaurant called Fleming's where we went for our first like real date and we actually had the same waitress. And so we eat, we have wine, we have steak, we have lava cake, and then we're sitting in one of those corner booths. And so he slides over and he talks about how we've talked about marriage, we've talked about rings, and then he said, I'm going to do something really untraditional. And so he pulled the coin out of his coat pocket and he asked me to marry him. You know, you just mentioned the fun show. And of course, that's super timely. One of the folks we met at the fun show back in July was Brian Harriet of the Druids Cash. So as soon as we got back from the show, we wanted to talk to him for the podcast. And that was uh, one of our uh, next highlights for the year, episode uh, number 122. We got to delve into what exactly is a condor token and, and what do they mean and why why are they uh, maybe important? And, and we got to hear from a, a newer dealer, somebody at the, you know, closer to the beginning of his dealing journey about the challenges uh, in engaging in that side of the thing, you know, the, the business side of the hobby, uh, especially, you know, during uh, these weird times. And uh, it was uh, it really stood out to me when you know we sat down to think about uh, highlights from the year. So that's that's the next episode. Indeed, with uh, meeting Brian in Orlando at the Summer Fun Show in July, and understanding his his journey and his interest and in how he got involved with this, and and he conveyed that to us now. And uh, I think we're about due to do a checkup and see uh, where Brian stands, and uh, hopefully we can. Uh, pound around the aisles and find him. Uh, if he's down here in Orlando, I'm going to check while I have the opportunity here. I'm going to check and see if we can find him. Yep. Booth number 654 is where he's supposed to be. So uh, Brian Harriet, and again, we had an opportunity to visit with Brian again. He was very, very busy at the Rosemont show as well. So, uh, you know, we had a, that our episode came out just before the ANA show there, and I think it helped him with a little bit of recognition. So if you're looking to boost your business, maybe we can help you out here. We do have a sponsorship availability open for you. So uh, come on here and, and sign up on that. But in the meantime, let's learn a little bit more about Condor Tokens now. As we go back, it was episode 122, and here's the words of uh, Brian Harriet from Druid's Cash. You know, Condor Tokens are, I think, one of the most undervalued areas of numismatics today and they're ripe with stories they're wonderful designs for somebody who's never heard of a condor token how would you describe it what are they well they are provincial tokens from england uh and well the great britain so the england scotland ireland had their own tokens made and they were made in the late 18th century so we're talking a period of about 10 years from 1787 to 1797 and they sprung into existence because there was a severe lack of short change, small change, uh, rife with counterfeits of just really poor quality items. You know, they said if it was round or brown, it basically worked as currency back then. 
And the crown itself was reluctant to mint more copper because copper was considered a more of a base metal as where silver and gold were much more of the regal type of metal. So how they started was that when Thomas Williams at the Anglesey Copper Mines Company decided to make his own tokens to pay his employees and to, for them to use a short change, a small change. And so he created a penny token that had a druid on one side, which was sort of a nod to their own history, the Anglesey Island druids that the uh, Caesar and the Romans conquered just shortly after the time of uh, the birth of Christ. And on the other side is a, a cipher with the PMCO, the Paris Mining Company. And so these were full weight copper coins, and they quickly became very popular because they were so beautiful and so many people wanted to have them. And this sort of led into an avalanche of creativity and design and people just having to have these things. So it quickly started with um, the copper mines and, and tradesmen. Now, John Wilkinson, the iron master, was no, another one of Birmingham who had his own tokens made for his employees, and they were very finely made as well. And Matthew Bolton at the Soho Mint was one of the other influential historical figures to get involved in tokens. And these trade tokens so were meant to give people, give tradesmen, a opportunity to supply change to their customers or to pay their employees and also to advertise their business. And it did all three of those things. And it became collected at the time. That's what's really important to understand when you see these things and you're like, how is it possible that a coin that was minted in the 1790s that was made of copper, which is much more sensitive to the elements than, say, silver or gold, how is it able to maintain this beautiful, lustrous quality? And some of them are bright, brilliant red, like they've just left the mint. And that's because they were collected at the time. There were people writing books about these things at the time and studying them and trading them back and forth from collector to collector. Even the collectors themselves would have tokens made of themselves to give to other collectors to trade for their tokens. So the whole collecting thing just took off and manufacturers took advantage of that as well. And they made as many tokens as they could because they could sell them. That was uh, great to hear Brian again a little bit and explore the uh, idea of Condor tokens. One of the beauties of this hobby is how Brian talked about all these items that have these great stories. And, the, you know, the story aspect is a through line to a lot of what we do on the podcast. And there was no guest that highlighted that better maybe than author Frank Holt, author of uh, When Money Talks. And of course, Frank explores in his new book, newish book, all the many ways money touches our lives and the things, the stories that it tells us about ourselves and it, and it tells, you know, other uh, others about different nations and all that. It, it really was uh, a great time to talk to him about it. The, the book's fantastic. That was episode 123. We had a run there in the summer where it just seemed like every week we were, we were thrilled. The numbers uh, of listens to the show really showed it that uh, everyone out there was appreciative of it. Uh, he was part of that streak. And uh, boy, I was moving stuff from my bookcase the other day 
and uh, picked that up and, and just had to pause and flip through it again and be reminded of how cool of a, a book it is and how much fun our discussion was. Oh, indeed it was. Frank uh, was uh, very representative of the historical side of things and very thorough. And it, the thing of it is that there are some elements of that book that can get really intense. You can really get when you get back into some of the ancient times and they can get really intense. But he had this way as his, as an educator, he had his way of bringing that information out to you so that you were brought along for the journey here. And it's full of uh, one-liners and full of thoughts, the things that can make you think about some things. And I, I know I've used a few of his lines in the past uh, six months because of what I learned about the book. And, uh, it, you know, it's just great to have Frank Holt. The, the book was called When Money Talks. It was made available in uh, the late summer, so it's very much still out there. In our case, it was episode number 123, and uh, that was just uh, allowing us to get further on into the summer here. But again, as you mentioned, you know this is something that uh, the folks really loved, and it's always great to have that. So let's go back in time once again and get a listen to what Frank Holt had to say when money talks. Coins are one of the most significant historical sources that we can uh, possibly study. And it's a source that's often overlooked, particularly by modern historians. We ancient historians rely upon it a, a great deal because it is uh, from the time that coins first were introduced in the uh, late 7th century BC, the only continuous source that we have that's uninterrupted, in other words, and it's uh, information about the development of Greek and Roman civilization, for example. And as a result of that, the, you know, the permanence of coins, the durability of coins, the extent to which ancient people could compact so much information onto a coin, that's something we moderns have often lost sight of. They're the earliest form of digital uh, encoding of information in a transportable and transferable way. And so these tiny bits of information technology provide information about almost every aspect you can imagine about ancient societies. And in fact, a lot of my work has been about the Greek settlements out in what is today Afghanistan. And because so many other sources that once existed for that history have now been lost, Coins are our only source for great stretches of that history. I've reconstructed entire civilization of the Greek experience out in the East based almost entirely upon coins alone. So we can't underestimate the value of coinage. They are a keystone for almost all of our knowledge, particularly for the ancient world. It seems there's always been a monetary uh, or pecuniary component to coins, both, I mean, you know, that's a tautology, obviously, but, you know, as, as long as coins have been made and coin hoards have been left to be discovered, they've been subject to the uh, avaricious whims of, of those perhaps who would discover them. Uh, how do you rectify the tension, you know, the debate today in modern times, you know, between archaeologists and collectors, and can they cohabitate a, a shared space of of respect and appreciation while serving to tell those stories? You know, it, it's a collection in my mind of snapshots. Each hoard, each deposit is a snapshot, and you need a bunch of them to put the movie together. How do we bridge the gap there? 
I include a chapter in the book that is a, mm-hmm. a, a dialogue that takes place in a classroom, a fictitious college classroom with a fictitious instructor and students who invites a coin collector as a guest to show off his collection of coins to these students who are taking an academic course on numismatics. And I use that chapter uh, as an opportunity to weigh in on this ongoing debate between those, um, particularly the archaeological camp, who say coins should not be privately owned, at least not historically significant coins should not be privately owned, and the interests of the private collector, who in many cases take much better care of coins than do academics uh, and historians and archaeologists and others. And I hope that that chapter really brings out both sides. Now, it doesn't resolve the debate, and I don't know that I'll ever change any minds, but I hope that that debate will open some people's minds. And at the close of that chapter, this fictitious numismatic uh, professor suggests that one solution to this problem would be not to look at numismatics in an archaeological model. Because if you do, then the archaeologists will insist that amateurs can't write um, papers to be published in academic journals, private collectors should not own important coins, and so forth. And I think that's going a bit far uh, in the debate. But instead of that archaeological model or that archaeological insistence, that we look at sort of a paleontological model, a curatorial model. So that uh, numismatists uh, like myself would work more in the vein of uh, modern day scientists who work on the study of ancient dinosaurs, who depend upon private collectors and private collections uh, in order to find information, who rely upon the cooperation of a kind of business side of paleontology to help develop the information available for the academic side of things. You know, Jeff, you have uh, been able to find some gems on social media. By you keeping track of what's going on on social media, you see interesting stories. And it's not always about people who are involved in the business, not always about people who were authors. And though uh, we try to get a diversity, we try to get a variety here. But I'm going to tell you, you have uncovered one of the top human interest stories of 2021. I think you know what I'm talking about. You have to be talking about episode 126 with Kerry Richardson. Uh, This is a gentleman out in Washington State, I believe it was, who was fairly new to paper money collecting, but was intrigued by something he found at his local coin shop. That set him on a journey that uh, took him, metaphorically speaking, to the other side of the Pacific Rim. And uh, he was able to tie the story together of uh, war and a Japanese-American uh, interpreter and with this banknote and locate the son, the family of the guy who was involved with the, the banknote almost, what, 70, 80 years ago. So that was really cool. And, and you know, I've said that a lot, but I don't mean to be cliche, but there there are so many neat aspects to this. I mean, a couple, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago, I went to a local shop and I picked up about a dozen pieces of paper money that all have writing on them from different places that people were in World War II. Some of them 
they're not really short snorters, you know, but they're artifacts, much like the note at the center of the Carrie Richardson episode. It speaks to how these things are out there and they're everywhere. And we just have to be attuned to look for them. The shop that I got them from, they were just in their dollar bin. They didn't, you know, it's nothing to them. And I don't know the story of this yet. I haven't dug into the the soldier behind it, but it exists out there. It's a story waiting to be told. And thankfully, Carrie is somebody who went the extra mile and was able to tell that story of this uh, individual who served America and um, bridged the gap between World War II and modern uh, life today. What a neat story. So here is that a small portion of, of episode 126. Well, I knew the soldier's name. Um, his name was Shijio Tanimoto. And um, so I did investigation on him. First of all, I searched for him with 27th Division, and I found a military record for him in a database for Japanese Americans who had served during World War II. So that sort of started the process of investigating him a little bit. I I figured the gentleman was probably deceased given the time period, um, you know, so long ago. And, and and in fact, he had passed away in uh, 2011 in California. So using that information, I, I did find his um, obituary. And then that led me to his family. Um, I do genealogy as well. And, and obituaries are a great source of information. And, and that led me to his family. And then it was just a matter of uh, trying to locate his children. I didn't know if they were still alive or if they were in, in the States or whatever. I did eventually find his son. So this is interesting. This is somebody who was Japanese-American serving in the American military in Japan, writing on a Japanese banknote during wartime. Well, the soldier was, um, he was Nisei, which is, means second generation um, Japanese is born in the United States. His parents had immigrated to Hawaii originally and then moved to California. He joined the U.S. Army before Pearl Harbor. What he was doing is he was working as an interpreter or, well, I guess you could say an interrogator with American forces anytime they had to interrogate a prisoner or whatever. Um, so he was all in the Pacific. He, I, I have pictures of him in um, I believe Saipan and some of the islands leading up to um, when Japan surrendered. Interesting point as well is before he left for the war, um, he, he had gotten married. And while he was, he got sent overseas to fight in the war, his wife and his family got sent to the internment camps. So, I can't imagine being so far from home fighting for your country while your family's uh, basically locked up at home. Yeah, by the same country for which you're fighting. What a what an amazing thing. It's a big world out there, you know, and uh, as evidenced by Carrie Richardson's situation right there. But we talk about community. It's all about community and making a connection here. And you know, one of the ways that the big world gets a whole lot smaller is because when you find somebody who has shared interests in you and 
Well, I was at a show um, over a year ago now and happened to just dig through one of those bins you were talking about that had world paper money on it. And lo and behold, there's a note with a squirrel on it. Oh, man, that's really cool. I just yep. the idea that there's a bill with a squirrel on it. Now, is that note particularly valuable? No, it's not. But to me, it was pretty cool. But there are valuable notes out there. And those who get into the world paper money realm tend to find themselves with ample opportunities because you think of how many countries there are in the world and how many denominations. And we were fortunate enough to have a guy who knows a lot about world bank notes. Dennis Hengeveld was on episode 128. Dennis operates worldbanknoteauctions.com. And uh, we got to explore the market for world paper money, what matters to, to buyers today, uh, some constraints on the market, uh, right? There's different things. You, you really have to listen to the whole episode if you haven't already. This little teaser bit may cover a little bit of it, but there's so many aspects to consider that if, if you're not really tuned into the world paper money market, there's so much to learn. And, and thankfully, Dennis helped pull back the veil a little bit and uh, teach us uh, some of what he knows. That was in episode 128. Here is a portion of that. What advice would you give to someone who uh, is considering uh, going down the paper money route here? Obviously, you had your experience in Baltimore that got you a little more ingrained in this. But now if somebody, if somebody comes to your website and sees the vast array of the material that's available there, what, what do you suggest? How do you suggest that they start? Well, I think the one thing you do want to do is, is remain focused. Um, you know, there's literally tens of thousands of different notes and, and nobody can collect it all. Um, you know, there is no Elias Burke or, you know, off-world paper money. So pick an interest that um, you maybe have a personal connection to. You know, a lot of people will collect notes from a country their ancestors or they themselves are from. Um, there's also people that collect topically, you know, basically like what, happened with stamps you know they might only collect notes with famous people on it or um, with animals on them so that's really you know pick an interest you know really focus on that and learn a lot about it um, which is going to take time because there's you know there is a lot of information out there but it's very scattered um, you know there's no websites that you can find all the information you need you know you're really going to have to you know talk to people um, try to understand, you know, how the market has developed for that particular area and just go from there. Well, if somebody has an interest in, say, a U.S. coin type thing, there, it seems like it's a finite set. But with the situation with World Bank note auctions, it looks like you have to deal with countries that exist today and even countries that didn't exist. How much of is it a challenge for you to uh, be able to present the material that's needed to satisfy the needs of these collectors? So the, the the one problem that world paper money as a market as a whole has is the lack of supply. And this is something that I think is, is if there's one hindrance in the growth of it, that's what's going to be the problem. Um, you know, there's notes that will only come up at auction every decade or, or even less than that. Um, and the, part of the issue is that, you know, this has really grown exponentially over the last couple of decades. Um, but the supply has, has kind of stayed stagnant. Um, you know, we, we see big old-time collections come on the market. Once those are sold, you're not going to be able to replace those notes as easily as, as you would with like a U.S. coin. 
and that's basically applies to any country, you know, whether they're existing or they're still issuing, um, you know, except for new modern issues from, say, the 1990s on. Uh, and even there, there's some exceptions. But um, if you're looking for, name something, um, Western Samoa, five pound 1961, you might only have one opportunity every decade. And, you know, right now there may be three or four collectors interested in that note, um, add a couple more and you'll see the issue. There's just not enough material out there. Our final uh, bit that we'd like to talk to about now, I, I can't take the credit for this one. I mean, I was only, I only get the assists on this one because this was an idea that you and Chris actually had that uh, we were able to get to uh, get to fruition, if you will. And that I'm talking, of course, about episode 135, and that's when the opportunity arose to get us some time with Dr. Ellen Feingold. Tell us how that all came about. From the early days of the podcast, I'd wanted to get uh, Dr. Feingold on as a representative of the Smithsonian. I mean, there's what's more prestigious and important to understanding the hobby today in a in a museum context than the Smithsonian, right? So we were finally able to line things up, schedules and uh, line, you know, the stars aligned that uh, Dr. Feingold uh, followed up, reached out to us and said, you know, hey, let's talk about something that we've been working on for the last little bit. Give a teaser to the Coin World podcast audience as something that's coming out in 2022 now. Boy, what a great guest. I, I even remember going to a coin club. I think it was not a coin show, a coin club locally. And, and a couple people told me, hey, I listened to the podcast that this week or last week, whatever it was. It was the whatever, you know, most recent uh, with uh, the lady from the Smithsonian, the guy said, I think. And he's like, wow, she's impressive. You know, that's really interesting. And so I, I said, you're right. We enjoyed hearing uh, from Dr. Feingold. That's not going to be the last you hear uh, from Dr. Feingold, both uh, from the podcast standpoint and certainly in CoinWorld's coverage. But take a listen now and uh, get a little understanding of what the National Numismatic Collection is, uh, why it's important, why it exists, and uh, some of the, the role that the Smithsonian has in presenting the nation's story to members of the nation and, and visitors. That was a great little episode, episode 128, I think it was. 135. 135, sorry. So here it is. So for folks who may not be aware, can you explain uh, what the National Numismatic Collection is, uh, how long you have been involved in that, and, um, and then we can go from there. Absolutely. The National Numismatic Collection is our national collection of money and transactional objects, it's about 1.6 million objects, and it is part of the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution. I first became involved with the collection in 2013 as a volunteer, and about a year later, I became its curator. And it's a huge privilege to work with such a magnificent collection. The National Numismatic Collection is the national collection of record for the US, but it is truly a global collection. We have objects that represent every inhabited continent and we span more than 3000 years of human history. What makes that so special and wonderful is that it allows us to place American history in a global context. And all of these objects in the same vault are in conversation with one another 
through you know this ongoing growth and, and combination and research on the collection. The National Numismatic Collection belongs to everyone. It's a public resource. It's a national resource. And I really see my job as making the collection as accessible to everybody as possible. Uh, when I first joined the collection, uh, I first joined as curator, um, you know, very little of the collection was available online, and there wasn't a formal process for consulting the collection in person. And we also didn't even have an open gallery, you know, on the floor of the, of the National Museum of American History. So over the last eight years, we have tried to provide access to the collection in three different ways. You know, first through through creating the Value of Money exhibition, which is our gallery on the floor. Of course, that's only about, you know, 400 or so objects out of the 1.6 million but it's many highlight objects. It's objects that we know people want to see, like the 1933 Double Eagle and the $100,000 bill. Um, but it's also objects that they may not have expected to see, but we think will really you know, excite and inspire them. Things like stone money from the island of Yap, um, seashells, you know, Bitcoin magazine, all of these other objects that help explain um, history of money and help bring people in to the national collection and its tremendous diversity. So there you have it. We have selected 10 of the 52 episodes that were done in the year 2021. And some of them may have been your favorites. I mean, I know one of my favorites didn't make the list. I love talking about Disney dollars back in the day. And I love some of the uh, some of the discussions that you and I have had without the uh, benefit of another person on the podcast because uh, we were hogging it all for ourselves. But it's just the idea that 2021 was a year that we look back now in retrospective and, and some of the things that happened with an idea that 2022, we're, we're glad to have this opportunity to be in the driver's seat to bring you the Coin World podcast each and every week. Thanks to you, the listeners, first and foremost. Thanks to those of you who have supported us from the get-go and those of you who have joined us in the middle. And those of you who have uh, come to the shows and talked to us, and those of you who sent the emails to us out here, you know, again, it's a Big Ten hobby and takes all kinds of people involved with it. Our thanks to Amos Advantage was along with us for a while in 2021. Coin World Plus still there with us in 2022 and looking for bigger and better things. And Coin World Plus, by the way, at booth 102-104, if you happen to be heading into Orlando, you can come and, and see us there. So we're getting ready to hit the show floor, but we had to take this time right now to look back in 2021. Jeff, any final thoughts? Not really. I mean, you summed it up. I mean, there were, uh, you know, guests who aren't featured on this retrospective uh, by no means you know we appreciate everybody and we learned something from everyone who was on the show and and we wouldn't have had them on for one right so i'm really excited for this year for the things that we're trying to line up for the podcast and and we do again sincerely thank you for listening uh, for being there with us it's nice to know there's somebody on the other end of this we're not just shouting into the void we're blessed to do this and delighted to do it. It's a unique situation to be in and uh, don't take it lightly. So thank you. Yeah. And I, you have to understand too. And I think in full disclosure here, one of the reasons why we did a best of 2021 was because it was either do that or do a three-part series on all our mistakes. So we chose to go with the best of 2021 because it seemed like it was going to be less work. 
So we promise to take the best of 2021 and grow upon it. We want to make 2022 a much better year for the idea that we have a lot to tell, talk about in the numismatic hobby here. We're looking forward to being out there on the show, starting with Orlando, Jeff being in New York, and then uh, down the road, is it going to be National Money Show? We're going to go to Central States. What's going to be happening here? We don't know for sure. I mean, this time last year, we didn't know we were going to see the sale of an $18 million coin. Will there be a $20 million coin in 2022? Who knows? But we want to be here so that we can help bring you the news, help bring you the education, help bring you along in whatever it may be. So I'm going to go ahead and shut up now because we have to get ready for the fun show. So I know you do too. So how about it? Are we uh, ready to get going and get ready for next week's show? Let's have fun. And until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.